Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager of Waverton. So as the final days of 2021 ebb away, it's perhaps a good time to reflect on what has once again been an extraordinary year. It's also a good time to thank our guests on the podcasts. The topics have been varied and fun, from investment philosophy with Charlie Jones to period products with Celia Poole. We've had disruptive entrepreneurs like Simon Rogerson, founder of Octopus Group, Peter Roberts, founder of Pure Gym, and Charlie Jardine, founder of EO Charging. We've carefully unpicked ESG investing with Dominic Scriven, chairman of Dragon Capital, and Charlotte Young from Troy. We've had titans of the world of sport and business like Will Greenwood and Ben Fennell, and the next generation of great fund managers like Stephen Yu, founder of Blue Whale, Max Ward, the general partner at Outsize Ventures. Thank you to you all. 52 episodes is not bad going, given that I was only meant to do six. In this episode, we shine a light on what trends have emerged this year, not only in the world of investment, but also the way we work, where we live, where we go on holiday, and how we spend our money, which changes are structural and which are cyclical. To unravel some of these themes, I am delighted to introduce our guest this week, Rory Sutherland. Rory is the vice chairman of Ogilvy, columnist for The Spectator and author of Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. I couldn't think of a better person with whom to explore these ideas. In this episode, we cover the working from home dynamic, the future of cities, property prices in Somerset, whether the gap between white and blue collar workers is about to narrow, what Karl Marx would have said about Uber, stakeholder versus shareholder capitalism, weekends in Barcelona, and which companies have had a good or a bad pandemic. Finally, we explore why Mary Berry has a lot to answer for. I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I did recording it. Have a very happy Christmas from us all at Waverton. This is the Why Invest podcast. Rory Sutherland, welcome to the podcast. Rory, we're going to be talking about 2021. And a review, I suppose, of 2021. I really want to focus on things that have changed, be it in work, the way we work, the way we consume, or the way we invest. How much of those things have changed for good and how much will go back to the way they were BC before COVID. But let's start with where we live, because I was one of the 850,000 people who left London and moved to Somerset after COVID. And I wonder, have we turned our back on the city? Yes and no. It's, I mean, these things are hugely complex. I just made a 10-minute film for Ogilvy, for our employees, saying, should you escape to the country? And it's worth noting I'm biased, okay? And I'm very conscious of my bias in this area because I am 56. My children have left home. I've got a fairly nice spacious flat in which I have no problem carving out office space. And I have a mildly annoying commute. Okay, it's not massively annoying. It's about 45 minutes. But, you know, when you don't commute, it adds one and a half hours to your productive day to some extent. And so I was fairly assiduous in making the appraisal about should you escape to the country in overcoming my own personal biases, one of which was to say that in many respects, flexible working might make living in London more, not less desirable. I mean, you know, for one benefit, there are fewer tourists, which let's be absolutely selfish, uh, is probably a, you know, a bit of a bonus. But also, one of the annoying things with London is you end up only being free on Saturday and Sunday. And on Saturday and Sunday, everything in London that's any good is kind of overcrowded or oversubscribed. Whereas if you can carve off three free hours uh, during daylight hours on a Wednesday, you know, you can take advantage of London as it should properly be appreciated. So, It's not entirely clear-cut. The other point I made is, look, if you haven't lived in London for, let's say, eight to ten years, you probably shouldn't leave because you haven't had long enough to get sick of it. (laughs) Okay. Secondly, don't assume if you move to the country that your friends will come and visit you. They'll come and visit you once to nosy around your new home. But if you think they're coming back, Elvis has left the building. Londoners regard a trip by land out of the M25 as something akin to a polar expedition. 
You can't get good coffee, for one thing. What they will do is they will go back to London bitching about the fact that the local bakery didn't sell olive focaccia bread or something. <laughs> Although, now, I'll counterbalance this by saying that, in fairness, many of the disadvantages of moving somewhere else have significantly reduced the internet, for example, has been an extraordinary geographical leveler, right? You know, the best bookshop in the world is no or in Britain is no longer in London. It's online, okay? If you want to buy obscure hi-fi equipment, you no longer need to go to a large city. You buy it online. Netflix isn't any worse, you know, when you get out of London. It doesn't suddenly lose 27 channels. You don't have the problem where for instance, you know, Ocado sells fewer items once you move outside the M25. And it's not as if Fortnum's wouldn't deliver to you if you really want that kind of stuff anyway. So in material terms, there has been a leveling up. I'm also conscious of the fact that people who move out of London sometimes overcompensate. and They go, okay, we're sick of this. We're moving to the Outer Hebrides. And I argue that you don't really need to go that far. You know, Britain actually becomes fairly rural. Area equals pi r squared. And population density drops pretty dramatically once you're about 15 or 20 miles away from the center of London. I'd also argue that it's a very London-specific problem. If you live in Bristol or Liverpool or Newcastle, which are what I call highly attractive, very sane cities, you know, sane and manageable in size, to be honest, you can get in, you can get out, okay? You can live a life while working in central Bristol that's as rural or as urban as you want it to be. London and megacities are a slight outlier here because they're so goddamn big that if you want to escape the feeling of a city and the constant beeping and sirens and noise, you've just got to go a distance which is now slightly awkward. So it's really complicated. I mean, make sure you've got good broadband wherever you go. Your Somerset broadband seems pretty good to me. Well, we've got very good broadband and we've got reassuringly expensive delis. So, you know, we don't, which sell, you know, reassuringly expensive coffees. What do you think it means then for the provinces? Potentially, it's very exciting because I was talking to someone from Invest in Kent and I said, you don't really need to be called Invest in Kent anymore. You can call yourself Live in Kent because where the economic activity notionally takes place is now secondary to where the salaries get spent. You don't need Goldman Sachs to move to Maidstone, slightly implausible possibility, okay? If people from Goldman Sachs start living in Tenterton, it will hugely benefit the Kent economy without necessarily the need for office space to migrate downwards. So it is potentially a geographical dispersal of wealth, which was undoubtedly over-concentrated in cities. I would also argue that older people in London probably might use this as an opportunity to move out, which in many ways was overdue. I think what happened is rising housing prices in London, ironically, didn't encourage people to move out, they encouraged people to stay. And so people stayed in London because they were frightened of two things. One, missing out on property price gains, future property price gains. In other words, you know, they'd all heard of people who'd sold their three-bedroom flat in Fulham and cleared off to the country only for the damn thing to become worth £900,000 rather than three hundred. And the other thing was they're frightened of the fact that if they moved out, they'd never be able to move back. Do you think that's done, though, now? There's a school of thought which says that actually cities are for the young or the younger. And actually, people in late middle age or early, even early middle age, once they've had children, should clear off and leave the cities to become maybe a bit scuzzier, okay? Maybe a little less safe, but also a little more exciting. Mm-hmm. And last week, I saw someone vomiting at Charing Cross Station. In a weird way, I took it as a good sign. Now, just to be clear, I don't think it's a good thing for people to vomit in public, okay? Did you find out why they were vomiting? Well, that they were drunk. They were extremely drunk. Oh, okay. And okay. it was perhaps a leading indicator. If you think about it, if people are getting healthily drunk, a certain proportion of them are going to overcompensate and end up vomiting in a station. But the fact that actually a few people are far too drunk the sight of drunk people, is evidence perhaps that people in London are starting to have a slightly better time. Now, okay, it's a bit like litter, okay? Litter is undesirable, but it can be a desirable indicator of lots of people having, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of great places, Venice, New York, were historically always full of litter. And it was partly evidence of a lot of economic activity going on. 
there were moments during the lockdown where I would have longed to see someone throw up outside Charing Cross Station. But I wonder, thinking about work, I mean, if people have left and there is this sort of weird dance of flexibility that people have with their work, what does it mean for the future of work? What does it mean to manage people under those circumstances? Okay, let's caveat the fact that I'm probably disproportionately inclined towards flexible working. I also work at and in a creative part of the business where it's very, very important that our own employees are free to choose the environment in which they're most productive. And by the way, there isn't a set right answer to that question. Hmm. You know, sometimes it's a cafe, sometimes it's a library, sometimes it's a pub, sometimes it's a three-hour lunch. But what makes us most conducive, I think, to producing worthwhile work is the ability both to vary our environment and to hack our environment to what suits the particular task at any given moment. I think it's impossible, actually, to be truly creative unless you get yourself into a mode where you can lose track of time. And so if you're in an over-regimented clock-watching environment, you'll never really get genuine creativity out of that efficiently. So I'm biased, okay? But the one thing I would say is the open plan office was a total failure. Let's start with that, okay? The open plan office was an attempt to solve for the average, and it created an environment which was neither social nor was it solitude. And I think our creative people in Ogilvy disproportionately liked flexible working, and their argument was pretty much unassailable. They said, we prefer it, we produce better work, and we produce it faster and more collaboratively than we did when we were in the office. So what's not to like? Yeah, collaboration, collaboration, right. stick on collaboration. Like a, quite a big part of being creative, I would imagine, is to try and engender some sort of environment where ideas have sex with each other. And, you know, they bump into each other and procreate into something better than the sum of the parts. And I wonder if that can be done over Zoom. Yes, it can. I mean, first of all, I mean, one of the most successful pieces of Creative Ogilvy produced during lockdown was an Anglo-Canadian cooperation, which probably wouldn't have happened if we'd done it by airline rather than online. Mm -hmm. So first of all, it's worth remembering that the assumption that you have to be co-located in order to produce meaningful collaborative work creates a very large opportunity cost. Because yes, that may be true that it is better in and of the moment, but if it leads to less collaboration overall. Mm. It's rather like Mark Reed's point. He said, you know, before lockdown, I used to meet six CEOs a year face-to-face, and we'd have a fantastic face-to-face conversation. Now I meet 26 online, and okay, the quality of the conversation may be slightly worse, but if you're having five times the number of conversations, then you can't really realistically say that the level of collaboration has gone down. And so... The vital thing to remember is that the assumption that you have to make every meeting perfect creates an opportunity cost in that it means there are fewer meetings. It's a bit like I always criticize cookery programs, okay? And the reason I criticize cookery programs is the ridiculous raising of the bar in terms of what providing food hospitality now means, means that people have fewer social events. You know, if we're a bit more casual, it was okay to invite five people around to have a pizza and six cans of beer. We do it once a week. But now, Mary Berry has set the bar so high for us that you'll end up in a situation where you have to take two days off work beforehand just to do your provisioning. And this is not necessarily a good thing. There's always a trade-off between quantity and quality. And sometimes it's much better to have more of what is slightly less good than having less of what is perfect. Yeah. God, Mary Berry, she has an awful lot to answer for. The number of dinner parties that don't happen because she set the bar unrealistically high. Relationships that didn't get off the ground as a result. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, there are a whole lot of children who haven't been born <laughs> because people couldn't face inviting a girl around to dinner. What then do you think it means, moving away from cooking, back, I suppose, to work, to productivity? I mean, there are many ways of measuring productivity. Do you think productivity's gone down? First point is, nobody bans you from going into the office under these new conditions. Okay, just to be clear about this, By the way, the UK is slightly different here from the US. I think we ought to make this distinction because in the US, there's a massive exodus of people from, say, Silicon Valley to Austin, Texas. Tax reasons, property price reasons, and so on. Now, if one of my employees moved somewhere which was a flight away, I would be slightly concerned. 
Okay. If one of my employees moves to a place which is a day's commute away by rail, which basically refers to a large part of southeastern England, you know, stretching to kind of Yorkshire and the Welsh borders almost, okay? If my employees move that kind of distance away, it's not the same level of concern. A very good bit of advice from one person, I think it was Paul Dolan, is go into the office slightly more than you think you'd like because we're very bad at kind of forecasting what works. And so forcing ourselves to do things that we're reluctant to do up front a little more than we would naturally. It's rather like the number of parties you went to that your wife or partner forced you to go to that you never wanted to go to, but you subsequently enjoyed. Mm. There is a value in nudging yourself to do slightly more of those things, which are kind of upfront painful. The other thing I'm suggesting is I think there is scope for encouraging people to go into the office one day more than might arise as an equilibrium without that encouragement. So I'm not being a complete bloodhound here. And the vital point is nothing's stopping people going into the office. When you do get into the office, it's actually much more sociable because everybody there is there because they want to be there. So the level of conversation and the degree of free-flowing conversation you now have in an office which is full of people who've chosen to go to the office is much higher than it was when a lot of people were there under duress. Mm -hmm. So there is emphatically a ratio. There are two things that matter, getting the ratio right and getting the variance right. And one of the things I do think about work is that we do not produce great work under uniform, monotonous conditions. I wonder what's it mean for the retirement age? Do you think retirement age goes up? Ah, you spotted it, yeah. You might argue that we're going to taper off rather than retiring because the interesting thing to me is that most people, I think, retire because they want to stop commuting, not because they want to stop work. And I would also be slightly wary about instantaneous retirements because as one person said, if you stop working completely, you kind of age very fast. And so one thing which is relevant to pensions, investments, all kinds of things like that is the extent to which people will work for a few years longer. I've always regarded it as slightly funny. I've said that we take increasing amounts of leisure at the beginning of our lives in the shape of higher education or at the end of our lives in the shape of retirement. The strange thing is that if I said to Ogilvy, I want to take a year's sabbatical, they go, it's extremely inconvenient. We can't really guarantee your salary when you come back. What a nuisance. But at least I'd come back in a year. If I retire a year early, I take my entire Rolodex, my entire fund of knowledge, and I walk out of the building never to return. And it's very strange that employees almost regard early retirement as something that you shouldn't attempt to discourage. In fact, it's positively welcome. Whereas any kind of leisure time taken within your working life is considered highly dubious. What does it mean for managers? Okay, if managers are good managers and can manage flexible teams who are disparate teams spread across the United Kingdom, why can't they then manage disparate teams spread across the world? And if that happens, will we, do you think, see a gap closing between white-collar workers and blue-collar workers? Absolutely fair. Absolutely fair. Now, the interesting point is that not everybody, in fact, only about 25% of people, I would argue, can work entirely remotely. They're pure knowledge workers in that sense. However, I don't want this to sound like a complete bleat for the white-collar worker, a complete whinge. It is worthy of note that if you decide to enter the knowledge economy, okay, and you have any condition which makes it difficult for you to work five days a week, eight hours a day, from a set location, typically in a city center. And that might be you're a mum, you're a single parent, you're a carer, you have some sort of disability, okay? White-collar work, compared to some kinds of blue-collar work, has been historically astonishingly inflexible. So if you are happy to do blue-collar work, and it's a pretty unwholesome distinction in many ways, but we all understand what we mean, okay? You could find shift work or Uber driving or various forms of employment that would fit around your particular circumstances, your chronological circumstances. I always notice that, very annoyingly, a huge number of tea rooms and cafes close at four o'clock or 3.30. And I always thought, this is pretty strange, given that the traditional time to have tea is actually five o'clock in the afternoon. And you realize, of course, that the person who runs the coffee shop or the people who work there want to pick up their kids from school. 
or something of that kind. So some forms of employment did allow you to trade off work commitments with other commitments with some degree of facility. White-collar employment didn't. Possibly one of the reasons it was disproportionately male in some cases. Yeah, well, there you go. Okay, well, this may be a trend that is probably more structural. Does the ability to work flexibly help us in terms of levelling up between uh, male and female ages? I learned this because I had a PA a few years ago who was a single mum. Now, I'm a devotee. By the way, flexible working is not a concession. It's pure Adam Smith, okay? Mm -hmm. The point of understanding Adam Smith and proper economics, as opposed to the kind of bastardized version of applied mathematics, which now passes for economics, as Hayek would say, it's a creative discovery process of around value exchange. That's what capitalism is, right? It's an endless process of discovery as to how two or more people can interact in a way that actually creates more value than there was individually. And so if you can make your job more attractive, not necessarily by paying people more or by giving people more free time, but giving them free when or free where, which are two qualities we don't know how to measure, okay, you've participated in that valuable process of value discovery. The Austrian school understood this all along, okay? It's this stupid, slightly nerdy school of economics we have that mm -hmm. doesn't really grasp it. So when I had a PA who was a single mum, I said, look, I have very eccentric tastes. You have unusual commitments. Let's actually combine them both so they work. So I said, I'm not remotely bothered if you're in the office before 10, because if you want to take your son to school, I'd prefer you are actually reachable by phone than on the tube traveling to work at 8.30. It's more valuable to me to be able to get hold of you by phone than to care whether you're in the office or not. Mm -hmm. I used to post my expenses to her home and she'd do those boring administrative jobs in the evening while watching TV while her son was asleep, therefore not depriving her of quality time with her son. And my argument about this is this is exactly the kind of inventive discovery process that capitalism exists to promote. And by the way, there's a great thing about offering your staff flexibility rather than money. Do you know what that is? No one knows how to tax it. So the interesting thing there is that, one, actually having a degree of flexibility over the hours you work is of material value. You know, you can buy things when they're cheaper. You can go to things when they're emptier. You can travel on trains off-peak. That's all a tax-free pay rise, okay? Being able to go into the office on an off-peak train or an off-peak tube is effectively a tax-free pay rise. And so one very tax-efficient way of rewarding your employees is not forcing them to spend money on things they don't want to spend money on. Yeah, we've also added quite a lot more capacity, I suppose, to... Uh, the road network and the rail network. We've solved those two problems. I said to Transport for London, the pandemic has actually gifted Britain, potentially, with a world-class road and rail network without a single mile of track being laid, simply by shifting the times at which people travel. But then there's another thing, which is you are giving your staff money and something else which isn't money, which they also value, which is autonomy. And you're giving it to them in a form that nobody can tax. That's good. But then there's a second question, which is, and I said this to Unilever and I said this to P&G, stop asking the question, do we want our staff to work from home? The real question you should be asking is, do we want our customers to be able to work flexibly? Because if a large proportion of the UK, the well-paid UK workforce, no longer has to spend a fortune effectively competing to get onto a train in the morning or competing for scarce housing, real estate, that puts billions back into the productive economy where it might be spent on Unilever and Procter & Gamble products. Henry Ford, it's a bit debatable, but Henry Ford kind of created the two-day weekend because he realized that a two-day weekend would make it worthwhile for people to buy a car. He didn't just think about what was productive within the Ford factory. He thought what would be productive for the economy as a whole. And he answered that question. He writes about it quite extensively, saying that in order to enrich the UK economy, one of the missing ingredients for widespread enrichment of the populace is more leisure. Because without leisure, there's no point in spending any money. Well, that's an interesting point. And I wonder, and you know, we come up against this quite a lot in our business and you know, trying to find great companies. And you know, we talk to management or the management of lots of great companies. And there is this sort of dance that seems to have sped up recently 
between this idea of shareholder capitalism versus stakeholder capitalism. And shareholder capitalism is the sort of Milton Friedman, yeah. you know, your only responsibility is profit versus stakeholder capitalism, which is kind of more murky. It's about customers. The problem with shareholder value capitalism is, one, I think it has given disproportionate power to the finance function within organizations. Because you have this organization which can lay claim to cost savings without ever getting blamed for missed opportunities, which I think is a distortion. The way I see any organization is as a triangulation exercise in how do we create value for our customers, for our employees, and for our shareholders simultaneously. And the idea that you have to narrow down the answer to that question to one of those three components mm -hmm. is nonsense. I mean, the person who, John Kay, uh, I don't know if you're a fan, I'm a huge fan, wrote a brilliant book called Obliquity. And he makes the mm -hmm. argument that this whole idea that you have to narrowly define what the role of an organization is, is utter nonsense. But I suppose it's because we've become obsessed by measurement. We like to measure stuff. So, okay, it makes answers to questions very easy, but whether those are the right answers is a separate question. And the other question I'd ask is shareholder value over what time period, right? Mm. Because customers might be with you for 25 years, your employees might be with you for 35, and your shareholder might be a high-frequency trading algorithm operating from some weird computer in New Jersey, right? Are you seriously saying that you should prioritize the interests of the algorithm in the short term over the interests of the customer in the longer term? I don't think that's good business. I'd probably add to that. Well, I don't know what the average CEO's tenure is, but I'm, my sense is it's probably somewhere between three and five years. Where do you think this sort of ebbing away of employee rights, which, you know, arguably, depending on who you read, is this the big shift between capital back to labor? Because I think, you know, I always think if, if Karl Marx was alive today, you know, he would have a field day on these so-called platform businesses like Uber or, or delivery. They're complicated because let's not forget, according to research, the majority of people on zero hours contracts like them. And you could look at Uber and say what Uber did is it identified a massive source of untapped labor availability in people who either by temperament or by circumstance couldn't commit to the clunky 40-hour week or who didn't want to. And so it's complicated, but Marx's diagnosis, I'm not sure about Marx's prescription, but Marx's diagnosis was pretty damn good for the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a particular problem, which no one's identified here, in any country which speaks English. <laughs> now, th th I know that sounds a really strange thing to say, okay, but I'm going to go a bit Brexity now. I'm not, I, I, I voted no, Remain, no but I've, I was so horrified by the reaction of extreme Remainers that I realized that they're hedgehoggy, single-minded view of how you improve the world through scale-based efficiencies was so unbelievably narrow-minded that it was terrifying to have such people in positions of influence and power who all thought the same way and all had this E-Day fix, okay? So I've become a bit Brexity, particularly since Brexit. And one of the things that distorts things is if you look at Commonwealth immigration, Commonwealth migration, there's a kind of symmetry to it, okay? which is an English-speaking Jamaican can come and work here. But equally, I could go and get a job in Jamaica. You know, I could work, quite appealing, actually. I, you know, I could go and work in an advertising agency in Jamaica. I don't know what the legal position is, but I could do that. Because of the peculiar nature of the English language as the world's second language, here's a statistic which proves my point. There are more British-born people currently working in Australia than there are working in the whole of the European Union outside the UK and Ireland. Mm -hmm. Now, what that means is that there are millions and millions of people who speak English well enough to do a job here, where the same does not apply in reverse. If I moved to Poland, I'd be sweeping the streets. And in fact, it would, I'd have to marry a Polish girl and spend seven years hanging out with all her friends, who would, by the way, probably try and speak to me in English anyway, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, in order to reach the level of fluency where I might actually function in some sort of skilled employment, which involved language. Mm -hmm. Now... The vital point there is that there's a kind of asymmetry, which we do have to be alert to, because it means that if you're an English-speaking country, there are 300 million people who can move to you, but I can't necessarily do the same thing in reverse. Let's think about it, okay, as a thought experiment, okay? Let's imagine you're Dutch and you only speak Dutch. 
Now, pretty quickly, you're going to decide if you want to operate at any kind of international level, even including going on holiday to Spain, you're going to have to learn a language that isn't Dutch. Because otherwise, all you can do is go to South Africa or maybe speak to very old people in Indonesia, okay? Or Belgians, okay? That's it, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, do I need to learn a foreign language? Yes. Which one do I learn? Very easy question. English. And you learn English, and effectively you now enter this kind of international, it doesn't matter whether you go to Southeast Asia or Latin America, English is going to be the second language on the menu. It's going to be the language that everybody learns after their first language. Slight problem here if you already speak English, right? Do I need to learn a foreign language? Not sure. Which one should I learn? Don't know. Okay? Third point, in order for me to gain the same level of international currency linguistically that the Dutchman has learned through learning English, I would probably have to learn five languages. So I think if I learned Spanish, tough one, Spanish, Chinese, possibly Mandarin, probably, okay? Arabic, do I learn Portuguese? Do I learn Russian? You know, do I learn... Actually, Urdu might be pretty good. Okay, I think... Am I right? Urdu and Hindi are more or less the same language. They're not dissimilar, I think. One's okay. in Pakistan, one's in India. Yeah, but, but basically, I think they're mutually intelligible. Is that fair? Yeah. I don't know. But I'd have to learn five languages. And mm -hmm. Even then, if I did have the time and ability to learn five languages, which beyond the age of 30 is not going to be easy, to be honest, I'm probably not going to gain as much as the Dutchman gained through learning English. Now, Maria, I want to talk about brands. I want to talk about which brands that you can think of have had a good, in inverted commas, pandemic, and which brands have had a, a bad, in inverted commas, pandemic. And, you know, who has hit the right notes? Who has misfired? People in grocery retail logistics deserve a huge amount of praise because the extent to which there were no noticeable shortages other than those created by mass hysteria, okay, Toilet paper is slightly unusual because it's not easily substitutable. <laughs> I contrast. I actually went into the first week of lockdown sort of looking in my cupboards in the assumption that by month two, we'd be kind of going, ooh, look, there's a potato at the bottom of this bag. In the end, I think on two occasions, I ended up buying my second favorite breakfast cereal. Mm. The extent to which the shelves were kept stacked was astoundingly impressive. It's also interesting because consumer capitalism, because it's messy, creates its own redundancy. So if you look at it, commodities, things bought as commodities, tend to turn into a winner-takes-all market. Now, this is a silly thought experiment, okay? But let's imagine that doctors and surgeons always bought their own PPE. So some surgeons wanted PPE that, you know, they wore over their head that had an Arsenal logo on it, Okay. And some other surgeons were massive Spurs fans, and they brought a different kind of Spurs mask. And other people bought Laura Ashley masks. Okay. Now, the one thing we could say is there wouldn't have been a mask shortage because the redundancy created in the system by catering for a variety of tastes actually contributes unintentionally to the resilience of the system. And the second you start defining things, as economists like to do, where I really disagree with economists is economists love defining things as commodities. I hate commodities. I think commodities basically destroy consumer choice. They destroy innovation because the definition of what the product is that's defined by a bunch of people in some European meeting trumps what it is people want from that product, which is very, very different. Okay, It leads to a race to the bottom on price, commoditization, and it leads to a lack of resilience in the system. But you could argue that capitalism, I don't know if it's capitalism, maybe it's lazy management. I don't know what the reason is that everything ultimately ends up as a commodity. And what I mean by that is, no. you know, even finance, it shouldn't, it shouldn't, but things do, things get packaged, they get put into a little box, managers work out how cheap they can make blank. Yeah, that's bad capitalism. That's commoditization. B2B is prone to do that. Yeah. Okay. Consumers don't. I mean, the most wonderful experiment I've ever seen or heard of performed was a guy called Alex Batchelor, who was the marketing director of Royal Mail for a long time. And I'm going to talk about Royal Mail a little bit coming up, whether you like it or not, where he asked an audience of 450 accountants how many of them had done a cost-benefit analysis before buying their last car. And in an audience of 450, he said about seven hands went up attached to like the saddest people in the room. 
Most accountants in their private personal lives don't buy things according to a formula. The reason we use a formula to buy things is not to make a good decision. It's to justify our decision in the event that things go wrong so that we can appear rational to our colleagues. Okay? It's not done to optimize the decision. Now, let's look at Royal Mail. Alex Batchelor, I think, did some other research with Royal Mail. And they were obsessing and spending millions and millions and millions of pounds around the reliability of delivery of first-class mail. Now, it's worth noting that this is not a great way to spend your money because most people, 95% of the time, have no idea when their letters were posted. So they don't really look at the postmark or measure the reliability of the service anyway. When someone sends you a check, you do notice. But then that's, it's mostly late because they're lying about the fact they posted the check, not because the Royal Mail... I mean, there's a strange feature of Royal Mail that somehow checks seem to arrive a lot later than other forms of mail, okay? <laughs> and I think that's down to the sender, not to the mm, network. Error. Now, the interesting thing there is that what they discovered is the single greatest determinant of a consumer's attitude to the Royal Mail brand was nothing to do with any of those objective measures. It was whether they liked their postman. Now, I know if you're an accountant or if you're anybody with a left-brain kind of preoccupation, it's monstrous to suggest that a large part of the value created by Royal Mail is a daily friendly interaction with a fellow human being who says, I live on the second floor. Don't worry, I'll bring the parcel up, Mr. Sutherland. Okay? Now, admittedly, I don't pay for it directly. And so it's very difficult to quantify that. There isn't a Royal Mail service, £10 a month, Royal Mail service with friendly postman, £20 a month. Okay? Mm-hmm. So we don't have an economic way of actually accounting for that value, but it is a very significant part of the value created. Mm -hmm. I also think there's something really interesting about Royal Mail, which is that humans aren't very good at understanding the value of network goods, because network goods create disproportionate value through magical network effects. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, okay, you can send a piece of paper to your mate in Glasgow overnight for less than a quid. Kind of amazing, right? Definitely amazing. And yet, you know, when the postage price goes up by 3p, people grumble. Mm. I always love things like Royal Mail because they always fascinate me because I think there's a case where those network goods are always underappreciated because they deliver spectacular efficiencies. Do you know who did it, by the way? This is fascinating. So before Roland Hill, there were single price postal services within London. And then if you wanted to send a letter beyond London, you had to pay more. And the guy who did the maths was Charles Babbage, who is, you know, certifiable genius, probably the forefather of the computer. And he worked out that actually the cost of transmission in a well-functioning network was more or less independent of the distance traveled by the letter. Mm. Because in the central spokes, you had so much consolidation Mm -hmm. that the cost per letter per mile on a carriage carrying let's say, 5,000 letters or mm-hmm. 10,000 letters, the cost per mile was absolutely nugatory. Mm-hmm. And that all the cost was in the collection at the one end and the last mile sorting and delivery. And so it was this mathematical work that proved that it was possible to have a fixed-price postal network for the whole of the UK, eventually for the whole of the empire. Until about 1910 or so, I think until the First World War, there was a thing called Empire Post. Mm-hmm. where you could send a letter anywhere in the empire apart from Australia and New Zealand, I think, for the same price, which was 1p. It is amazing. And it is, as you said, it's the power of the network effect. Yeah. I wonder, going back to our thoughts on 2021, I wonder if you can identify any brands or, or companies that have had a bad pandemic. Who, who's dropped the ball this year? Okay, this is complicated because how fortunate companies were during the pandemic mm-hmm. depended very much on circumstance. It would be completely monstrous for me to go, didn't cruise ships do badly? Yeah, God, they really dropped the ball. They really dropped the ball. Okay. (laughs) And so we have to give this a bit of a wider think. I think there was undoubtedly a certain amount of extremely tedious and repetitive advertising, starting with a sentence, at times like these, we need, you know. I think people were slightly, perfectly understandable, because it seems a sensible thing to say until everybody starts saying the same thing. I don't like naming individual brands because I don't know any. In fairness, okay, let's look at the brands that didn't have a terrible pandemic by saying, were there any which we could accuse of monstrous profiteering? Interestingly, you know, it was a very interesting dilemma, which is that 
For example, online grocery delivery, Mm -hmm. they had a slightly complicated dilemma, which is to what extent do we preference our pre-existing customers Mm -hmm. over new customer acquisition? And quite a lot of those entities like Ocado actually closed their doors to new customers. Now, economically, you might have argued if you'd purely been interested in growing your customer base, you would have let your existing customers go hang to a degree. And yet, that was a very, very interesting discovery where you had to trade off short-term expediency against long-term emotional feelings of what's just and fair. So we have to say, was there anybody who responded particularly ingeniously by reselling things in new ways? I'm just trying to, there were a few, and I'm just trying to think about what they were, who effectively sort of repurposed them. There were obviously heroic businesses which repurposed sort of perfume factories into hand gel factories. I've got a couple, actually, and I've interviewed a couple on this podcast. The guys from Cricket. I don't know if you've been to Cricket Restaurant in Soho. There's one in Television Center, Indian place. They basically went to zero in terms of sales from their restaurants for obvious reasons. But they completely pivoted their business ingeniously into so-called dark kitchens, or depending on who you talk to, cloud kitchens, yeah. as they like to be called, and went online brilliantly and, and switched their menu Switch the proposition and... Dishoom did the same thing. Okay. Tesco, interestingly, I asked someone at Tesco, how did you do this so well? And they said, we reversed our normal top-down model. We gave extraordinary autonomy to the stores Mm. to solve problems as they saw fit. And our job at the center was simply to act as support to the decisions made by the individual stores. So if they wanted stickers for queuing or social distancing, we would get those stickers for them but we devolved decision-making downwards, which I think is a very interesting response. The fact that at times of high stress, you can't afford the intellectual neatness of centralized decision-making. Yes, which I know Kate Bingham did brilliantly in this country, did she not? So this is the interesting case, which is she's married to Jesse Norman, is that right? I've never met Kate Bingham, but on the basic heuristic that most people's wives are more intelligent than them... And the fact that Jesse Norman is very, very bright. He's the sharpest tool in the box. I've always wondered how bright Kate Bingham must be. I think she's a rock star. So what was the policy she adopted, which effectively... Well, it was bottom-up. I mean, it wasn't centralised planning. It was, you know, go off and do your own thing, build the infrastructure, build the network. We're going to build that first before we discover a vaccine. When and if that happens, we're ready to go. That was my understanding of Kate Bingham, and that's why she's sort of held up as this sort of superwoman. And what's almost ironic is the whole process of booking my vaccine appointments online through my mobile phone, although done massively under duress, was probably my most positive interaction with the state <laughs> in terms of the, you know, the design and user experience that I've had in the sort of five years. So true. Did you have a tear in your eye as you did it? I mean, it made you feel very British. Well, booking the appointment at Tunbridge and going down and walking out of the little Tunbridge yeah. Leisure Centre place was deeply emotional, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean, I know what you mean. Okay, well, Rory, as we look forward to the uh, and stare down the lens of 2022, what trends, either across sort of companies or brands, do you think are here to stay? And what do you think we're going to be sort of thinking about and talking about in 2022? Flexible working has been a kind of white-collar posh general strike. (laughs) In that, yes, Goldman Sachs will be able to get their employees back into the office if they want to. But as I said to my boss, if you want to pay me a Goldman Sachs salary, I'll turn up at 8 o'clock in the morning naked five days a week, okay? Citadel did this, by the way. I have a friend who worked at Citadel. They sent an email to their employees saying, we are not a, in September, I think earlier this year, we are not a working-from-home company. That's stupid, by the way, because no Mm -hmm. one's disputing the fact that there is a huge role to serendipitous encounters, to -to face-to-face socialization. It's worth noting that it makes us a lot more resilient. I mean, not only to future pandemics, but to many other things. If we have two ways of performing the same thing. Weirdly, my team were quite well, uh, and I'm going to take the credit for this, which I usually don't do. (laughs) They hit the ground running partly because I'd been promoting working from home Fridays back in 2017 and 2018. And it always struck me that there was a lot of ridiculous presenteeism around work. I Mm. still don't know what the right ratio is, and it varies per person, per function, per job. But Mm. in many, many jobs, the right ratio is not 100 to zero. That's all Mm. I can confidently say. And so I instigated these working from home Fridays, flexible Fridays, before the pandemic hit. 
So it is resilience has a value. It's just harder to quantify in the short term. It only becomes salient when you actually have a crisis. And it always struck me that actually, you know, people who knew how to work from home well, well, actually, if I'm being totally selfish, I never told my team this, you'll probably get fewer sick days, won't you? Okay, because mm. there are a lot of days, you know, where you're not going to go into the office with diarrhea, but you can work perfectly functionally from home. It's a good example. You know, and there must be a lot of sick days that are occasioned by the fact that oh, I'll take the day ill because I can't go in. It's exactly the same as car drivers. People who own a car never take the train. Now, I think there are a lot of arguments to go by car rather than by train, and I can't argue with them. If you've got young children, it's very difficult to go somewhere by train. But nevertheless, the right ratio is almost never 100 naught. And at least now we're in a world where people are actually asking the question, well, what is the right ratio? You know, it might be 95-5 in some cases. But it probably, in you know, in most knowledge economies, it's not 100 naught. By the way, it's flexible working in two ways. Not only which days do you go in, but what time of day do you go in? I've been doing this for years. I'm, you know, I'm senior enough to get away with it, which is you do email from home and then you travel in on an empty train because your first physical meeting is at 11 o'clock. You know, so I've been practicing that degree of flexibility for ages because it seems a no-brainer. It also means, by the way, that because the train's empty, you can work on it, okay? So you actually gain an extra half hour of productivity. So, I mean, at least we're asking questions which were totally unasked before. And an awful lot of presenteeism was like what I call, it was like dressing for dinner in the 19th century. It was performative and it was a necessary norm because not to do it aroused comment. Mm. There's quite a lot of collective insanity in human behavior where everybody does the same thing for fear of not doing the same thing as everybody else. And the way I describe this is the day trip to Frankfurt on a plane is mm. probably going to die. If we're being blunt about it. And the reason for that is that before the pandemic, flying to Frankfurt was Coke and doing a video call was Dr. Pepper. And now the video calls Coke and the flight is Dr. Pepper. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's simply a question of normalization. You know, I, there might be a parallel universe where everybody drinks Dr. Pepper and you're thought a bit weird for drinking Coke. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. But in our universe, Dr. Pepper is not normative, whereas Coca Cola is. What about those nice weekends in Barcelona? which I'm sure we used to have. I can't remember, of course, but I'm sure we used to. There are two interesting stories from this. EY has basically banned all business travel flying by plane that involves a stay of one night or less, or fewer, technically, mm -hmm. but you get my point, yeah. one night or fewer. Google apparently has offered staff two weeks of work from anywhere. Now, I think it's conditional on your manager agreeing mm. and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But given that the United States has a massive blind spot around paid vacation anyway, mm -hmm. in fact, the United States economy would be much better off. I, I always say this to American leisure brands. If I were Disney, right, I'd spend 90% of my lobbying budget lobbying for four weeks vacation rather than two, Henry Ford style. Americans have a total blind spot around that. They mm -hmm. think two weeks is acceptable and normal. I've never met anybody, in, you know, I write for The Spectator, so occasionally some fairly right-wing people come out of the woodwork, okay? But I've never met anybody who says the trouble with Britain is we have too much holiday. It would be much, much better if we just had two weeks holiday and we could grow GDP by 4%. You wouldn't, by the way. But I mean, Germany, France, perfectly productive while they're working, possibly more productive because of the amount of leisure time they have. And the US strikes me as a philosophical backwater in understanding the value of, of leisure time. And terribly inefficient. I mean... Goodness yeah. me, you know, trying to get anything out of an American office. Don't quote me on this. Norman Berry, who was a Brit who was creative director of the American agency, said the same thing. He said that there's a strange combination of hugely hard work and presenteeism, visible hard work with remarkably low output in some cases. Any other themes that you think are, are important? So we've talked about flexible working, you know. We've talked about those sort of short work trips are probably a thing of the past. I probably aren't, I'm not allowed to go to, on my short weekend away in Barcelona. Well, I think it's a stupid thing to do. On the other hand, if you had a business trip to Barcelona for two nights, mm, yeah. you might well extend it into a five-day stay. Yeah. Maybe there'll be more leads generated in sort of beautiful cities around Europe. But this way, I don't think anybody's going to be having a conference in Frankfurt anytime soon. 
we're, we're a bit unfair. Actually, Frankfurt's a, be- a much better city than it's cracked out to be, actually. It's got some quite interesting aspects. Um, it is a bit weird in that it's basically a massive CBD surrounded by villages, effectively. You know, it's, it's very strange. But the point I'm making is that you're not going to be having any business conferences in places people don't want to go to for fun. That's probably a likely effect. It might be that people travel with partners more because the great problem with holiday making was the coordination problem. You know, two people had to be absent from work simultaneously. I discovered a great little discovery. I went to see my dad in Wales, and it so happened that the hotel or the pub where I normally stay didn't have any rooms free for Saturday night. So I said to my wife, okay, we'll go on Thursday evening. I'll work from home from the pub in the morning on Friday, and then we'll go back on Saturday evening. Totally empty roads in both directions. The best journey I've ever made, driving from Kent to Wales. Mm. cheaper price to pay at the pub because I didn't want to stay over a Saturday night. Just time-shifting things a bit can make an extraordinary difference because you don't need everybody to do it. And a lot of people mm. go, well, lots of people can't work from home. No, no, But the point is, you notice an enormous difference in the traffic in half term. Now, a lot of people don't have school-aged kids, but it only takes 10, 20, 30% of people to change their behavior mm. for the overall system to operate at a completely new level of efficiency. I think the future's bright then, Rory. I mean, I think the future's bright. I mean, as long as we don't get another strain, deadly or otherwise, that that forces the hand of of governments and policymakers around the world. What's the latest on the Omicron strain? I think the scientific community are fairly um, scared about putting their neck out, quite frankly. I mean, you know, we are going to... There's timestamps, there's podcasts, I'm afraid, but we may be speaking in, in six months' time. I mean, the really interesting thing is there's a possibility. It's like cowpox. There is an optimistic possibility that it confers mm. immunity with low levels of fatality. I certainly wouldn't want to put my neck out on that if I were a scientist, but it's not an impossible outcome. I agree. It's, it's interesting, this job, and I'm sure it's the same in your job. You know, we've, we've been asked to be many things this year. Uh, one of them is an epidemiologist, of which we're not particularly good at. <laughs> well, The interesting thing is that one great thing, which is being pretty meta on all this, is the world has had a crash course in catastrophe theory or complex systems thinking. Because we're not very good at thinking exponentially. In the same way that we don't actually properly understand compound interest, our heads don't quite grasp the effect. And I think, well, that's a, a strong positive to draw from this, Rory. Yeah. Rory Sutherland, thank you for joining me. It's a huge pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Rory Sutherland. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like it, subscribe to it, and tell your friends. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.